why do I want to buy a workflow or a BPM system? I can just write that in database tables. And it's like, yeah, you could, but that might not be the best way to do it. Yo, what is up, ZB Nation? It's your boy, Josh Wolf, coming at you live and direct from the internet from Brisbane, Australia. And this week, I have the privilege and pleasure of having on the show Sandy Kemsley, all the way from Toronto in Canada. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be here. And uh, Sandy is a BPM consultant and industry analyst. My degree is in engineering. So I started out, you know, writing, developing code. I was a, I was a developer. I don't do that anymore because that was a long time ago and I'm really rusty at it. But uh, I started out in um, the scientific imaging, actually. So remote sensing data, satellite data, medical imaging data, and so on, and writing algorithms to, to analyze that uh, that those images and then started working in you know in the sort of the late 80s with um, more with document imaging so desktop type imaging where this was the very early days of desktop scanning and storing your images on your computer instead of having you know file cabinets and file cabinets and then from there got into more of the workflow side and then that got me into BPM and process because with content uh, you know, it's not like every problem has been solved, but after a while, content is a pretty straightforward set of problems. Whereas I find that process is just like there's a there's an endless number of 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 problems to solve and challenges to overcome. So it's it's I'm still fascinated every every day by what people are are doing with you know, BPM or process management of various sorts in in terms of uh, all the different kinds of businesses and the applications they're using it for. There's code, there's processes, there's documentation, and then BPM is kind of at the confluence of those. You could look at it from those two aspects, like code, or three actually, code, um, business processes, and documentation. It kind of like puts all those three things in the same place. Yeah, it's really, it's about solving problems. And I think that that for me as a, you know, that that engineering background has really made me focus on solving problems. It's not just about, you know, and solving actual applications for people, making their making them um, their business work better, as it were. So it's not about just taking on some tricky academic problem where you're, you know, you're doing something cool, but it doesn't necessarily have a practical application. I always want to see a practical application. I want to be able to go in and look at how a business is working and help to make it better for all the people that are involved in there. So I typically would go in and, and talk with people at all level in an organization. I might sp- spend time with somebody who's you know processing insurance claims and figure out what they do every day and what are the things that they really don't like doing that could just be automated. And then what are the things that they need to focus their their attention on? What are the, where are the places where we need to have that human knowledge in the processes? So it's it's very often the processes that I work with are a crossover between the automation and the and the human task process. And where do you see this being used? Like you've mentioned insurance as one kind of use case. Are there particular industries where it's more either like prevalent in the industry or where it's maybe more suited to that as an industry? Well, I'm I'm 
I'm seeing it really everywhere. It's just, um, in, as, as I said, a lot of my consulting clients are financial services and insurance. So I draw most of my use cases from there. But, you know, you see that the application of process management, whether it's straight through processing or having human tasks involved, is really across, across every industry. You see it definitely in government, all of the, the services that, uh, that go out to citizens, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's taxation or uh, fixing a pothole on the street or whatever it is, it's there's business processes that happen within those government agencies and especially ones that, that touch the, the consumers. You need to be worried about how are those, how are those processes surfacing to the, to the consumers or the constituents that are, that are using those in the case of, of government operations and then how do you make those processes as efficient as possible in the back office so that somebody putting in something, you know, using their smartphone to, for example, report a problem on the on the street to their local government, that that just becomes an automated uh, an automated process behind the scenes without somebody having to do something with it. And we see the same things with the you know insurance claims. There's a lot in straight through insurance claims now. It's uh, you have companies that will take in a claim as a uh, a, just to fill out a form, and this happens a lot in things, you know, kind of standard things like when if you crack the the windscreen on your on your car, and there's kind of standard coverage, and all you do is you fill out a form, and that could be completely processed and adjudicated, automated without anybody ever seeing it in the back office, and all of a sudden just the payment lands in your in your bank account. It's it's almost like magic, and then if there is a problem. You, that's when you need to get the, the humans involved. So you need to have the ability to say, well, this doesn't look right. This person has broken their windshield five times in the last month. Let's escalate that to a person and have them take a look and see what the, if there's uh, you know some kind of fraud going on or something like that. So, so you have to find that balance between where can you, what can you automate, but also what do you need the human input for to make, to make decisions? What about startups where they're kind of like discovering their business processes as you know kind of developing them or is it is is it does it have a use there or is it more suited towards kind of mature companies that are well established have a well established business process and are now going to sort of codify that with BPM there's there's definitely some of each so i you know the the larger businesses that have been doing the same thing over and over again in a lot of cases they're looking to reinvent those processes a little bit because they are finding these new startups are coming into their into their marketplace and taking some of their um, uh, taking some of their market away, and so they're having to, to change what those processes look like. So even although you think of financial services, for, for example, as a very mature market, there's a lot of fintech startups that are coming in and changing, completely changing things like banking, and the big banks are having to respond to that. So we do see though you know the startup companies in these areas still have to have processes that are might be well regulated in the in the back end because they could be in a highly regulated industry and they need to be able to show that the processes are done in the in the same way every time so so process management happens for a number of different reasons is you know certainly one is around automation and orchestration and i know with you dealing a lot with with ZB, you're looking a lot at service orchestration, but those are, you know, those are processes at a level in the in the same way. We just kind of think about them a little bit differently. Um, so processes are are really about that automation, but they're also about things 
like compliance and making sure that you're that you're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing in the right order and that you're also able to prove that you were compliance because compliant because you have a record of how you executed this process for the last thousand times that it was always the same so there's being able to have an audit trail of how your work is done and this is the advantage that process management brings to to any industry that has any amount of regulation or even just financial oversight from um you know, might be from investors who want to make sure that things are being done properly within these businesses. But we see, you know, if you look at the at the microservice orchestration um, uh, sort of processes where they, these are more headless, straight through processes, there's a number of cases of things like uh, Netflix, for example. So Netflix is one of these classic cases where uh, they had, and I, I talked about Netflix a little bit in my keynote, where they were... Uh, had kind of old style development and processes, but they needed to have processes for having the streaming video go out to people. And you have to do things like make sure that somebody has an account and that they've paid and that they're not logged in at too many places at the same time. So there's a lot of checks and balances that go on. And they found themselves unable to manage these processes in, uh, in, in an adequate fashion. And that's when they started to move away from their monolithic architectures and move towards more of a microservices architecture to manage some of those the, the processes of delivering video out to their customers. And they found that this was uh, allowed them to be much more scalable um, and have much more resilience in, uh, in their business. Yeah, and it's interesting that Uber, Lyft, Netflix have all you know, switch to a microservices architecture and then they've in parallel created these orchestration kind of tools to manage their microservices complexity. So Uber's got Cadence, Lyft have got Flight, Netflix have got Conductor. So it almost looks like it's a, a parallel evolution. It's like a once you go down that microservices path, you, you need to have something to to create that orchestration layer right you definitely need to have or orchestration in there at some level it's not every application is is driven by orchestration you do have choreographed applications as well where you're looking at more of a of event processing but orchestration like you say is being is being reinvented in many different places and and you know i will i will and this this is not something new i can remember talking with customers decades ago and they would say well why do i want to buy a workflow or a bpm system i can just write that in database tables and it's like yeah you could but that might not be the best way to do it it's because somebody smart has developed a product that can probably do what you want to do and you don't have to write that yourselves but companies that are very dependent on their on their technology where their technology is really their competitive differentiator they are much more likely to be writing bespoke components and uh, you know within their technical architecture because they want to make sure it's exactly fine-tuned for the way their business works. Yeah, although it's kind of, and this is just my sense, you've been around in this aspect of the industry for a lot longer, so you may have a different sense. It seems like we've commoditized, like nobody builds their own cloud platform anymore because, you know, it's that's been commoditized. Do you think that that BPM space is either becoming commoditized or susceptible to commoditization now? It's definitely commoditized in certain areas. So in if you're looking at the at the type of, of you know workflow type BPM that involves human tasks as well as automation, that's definitely commodity. And it would be quite rare to have a company building their own from scratch. What they are doing, however, and what I'm seeing is that larger companies are assembling their own business automation platform 
using a, a number of different components. So they're looking at more of a microservices architecture and they might use a BPM engine, but not they don't want to use a full uh, BPM suite as their application development environment because that puts them into a proprietary development stack, which is you know not good for some organizations for a number of different reasons. But they're not going to write, in most cases, their own BPM engine or their own DMN for decision management, um, you know, something that's doing decision management. They're not, they're not going to write their own bit database for that matter. Those are considered, like you say, commodity components. Yeah, I can see how even for internal, like if, if your company's a pure software company, I worked at Red Hat for some time and we needed to get certification for US federal contracts. And we had a a security lab from Germany, some guys flew over and we had to go through and explain exactly how we developed the software itself. And that was a process and it wasn't really documented anywhere, but they had like a checklist and it was like, you know, does it go into source control? Is there any way for anyone to, who can access it? How does it get built? Are there reproducible builds? And if we had had our internal processes in that kind of diagram, as you say, it's like for compliance, we could just, you know, present the the diagram and then get that checked off. Right. And you think about today's kind of DevOps processes that are mostly automated. If you'd had something like that in place and it would just be, well, here's our DevOps process. It's all automated. You can just look at the logs of it. It's, it's you know, it's not just that you're following a, a checklist, but that the entire thing is automated from the time you, you know, you check something into a repository, the build gets done, the deployment gets done. So it's, it, the process is really at the heart of, of everything. Yeah. I've been thinking about that recently because Nicholas Wirth wrote that famous book, uh, data structures and algorithms and it's almost like there's three things there's data structures there's algorithms and then there's processes like stateful transformations over time which belong in their own kind of category yeah it's a little different from from data and if you look at if you go back to some of the roots of enterprise architecture if you look at something like the the zachman framework which was one of the first enterprise architecture frameworks that was ever done and he had like six columns that were looking at different aspects of your architecture and the first one was data and then the second column is process and then you know then you get into other components so you look at how you have interactions between those those areas of of interest and then the levels in the as you go up and down through the framework are kind of different levels in the hierarchy of the of the organization but that is in fact why my my blog is called column two it's a it's an homage to to zachman's framework and the second column which is about process ah and what's the url of your blog column2.com is that column two the number two or two actually both will work but the number two is the is the primary one so I do a lot of coverage of, uh, you know, when I'm at a conference, I'm usually blogging about the conference and talking about the, the things that I see and, uh, you know, just sort of general things that are happening in the in the industry. It's sort of whatever whatever interests me kind of goes on there over the years. What's your what have you seen over the time that you've been in the industry and what's your pick for like future trends? Well, you know, I don't see I don't see process management going away, which is you know definitely why I'm sort of in there. But it's it's really changing. Uh, the definitely the the architectural things, the, the trend towards microservices. Although larger companies are are very slow to shift in that direction, I believe that's a, a trend that's that's here to stay. That we're that we're moving towards that more granular structure, just to give us the the kind of agility and scalability that we need within uh, within things. So from a, a technology and an architecture standpoint, that's that's definitely one. But you know, we start to look at some of the technologies that are coming in and, and not 
not just process management, but things that impact on it. So all of the AI and machine learning is changing the level of automation that we can take on as well. At any point in a process, you might be making a decision. And now, instead of having a human making certain decisions, many of those decisions are made not just by decision management, by rule systems, but by artificial intelligence and machine learning. And this is allowing us to do fairly complex adjudication and decision making um, on you know things like insurance claims without having a, a person involved at all. And it's yeah, I think there's some amount of controversy over that because it is taking that work away from a from a person. But at the same time, it's freeing them up to be able to do the things that only a person could do, you know, dealing with customers face to face or, you know, having to having to, to work through a particularly tricky problem that doesn't necessarily have a, a solution through some negotiation or collaboration. So there's uh, it is about making more and more that is is just able to be to be automated. And that's, um, I think that's a pretty exciting part of what we're involved in right now. When I was a, a kid that was all like, in the future, our biggest problem will be how much leisure time that we have and what we're going to do with it. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to have panned out that way. It seems like there's more work than ever to do. Yes, it's true. It's true. It's just like, it, it seems like, like you say, it's just that we're, we're not all working a, a half week yet or anything like that. So it's, um, it's obviously, there's still lots of, lots of work that is required that that humans are required for that can't be automated at this point and it's uh you know it's kind of i think in a lot of cases though automation is looking at how can we automate the things that aren't either aren't very interesting or aren't very safe for a person to be doing so you know in a with technical automation in you know robots and industry we've done a lot of that in manufacturing um, but just the things in in business processes that happen in a back office somewhere just taking away the things that people don't really like to do or that they may make a lot of mistakes at because it's just boring, repetitive work and they're doing the same thing over and over again. And how can we take those things away so that their jobs are, are more interesting? Yeah, there's a couple of interesting articles in the last few days. One was from The Atlantic about um, Amazon's fulfillment centers and they've put robots into a lot of them and the humans who are working there, when it was all humans end to end, they were like, we we're working fast, but it was manageable. Once they put the robots in, man, that stuff started, those packages started coming down that pipeline so fast that it's become actually dangerous for the humans working there because they can't keep up with the robots. So they're like operating like right on the edge of like safety. Wow. That's, that's kind of, that's a little bit scary. I think that's a case where somebody has put in the automation and hasn't thought about the impact on the, on the whole environment, including the people that are involved. Yeah, there was a great quote in there. This guy said, like, um, you know, before it was manageable, but then, like, uh, once the robots came in, we're fighting a battle that we can't win, something like that. Sounded almost like a quote from Terminator. Yes. <laughs> I just saw the new Terminator movie recently, so yes. <laughs> the other thing I saw the, um, the other day that was interesting, there were two things, actually. One was um, AI and copyright. Like, if something's created by an artificial intelligence, you know, can the artificial intelligence own the copyright on it? I guess the to the AI, like, you know, people are asking for human decision or human task workers for ZB, and then will we see an AI task worker where, like, you call out to some artificial intelligence to make a decision, and then 
who becomes is can can an artificial intelligence be like legally culpable for the decisions that it makes? Well, artificial intelligence is probably being called in some ZB applications right now because it's just a service call. So, like you're just if you call a service to make a decision, it could be uh, AI or machine learning algorithm that's that's making the decision at that point in the task. It's just like any other activity in your like any other service that's in your uh, in your orchestration, and. Yeah, there's a, certainly a lot of controversy about the AI algorithms. Um, there was one about about hiring not that long ago, and I'm trying to, I don't want to misquote, so I, I don't remember exactly who the company was, but they built an AI that would do some of the pre-screening of their of their hiring candidates, and this was in a in a software development environment. And they thought this was going to be great, and this would take all the bias out, you know, the bi- and in part the bias against women because the women are not very well represented in in that industry in general. And uh, they found that the algorithm had exactly the same results as if they had people doing it. And they found out it was because it was trained using the data from those same people in the way that they made decisions. So it's like, well, you're just making the same bad decisions faster. You're not, you know, you, you haven't made this impartial in any way. Yeah, they have the similar thing for, there's a expert system that makes like um, judicial recommendations a- in the United States. And I mean, all they need to do is like statistically look at the number of African-Americans in in uh, prisons in the United States and their rate of recidivism, I think it's called, where they where they reoffend and go back into prison, and then have an African American applicant in front of the system, and then it's going to say, oh, three times more likely to reoffend than a person who's uh, like a a non African American. Yeah, yeah, I I, I saw that uh, I saw that as well, and it was very interesting because they're using uh, some you know some automated decisioning, and that's around whether to determine if somebody. Uh, gets out on bail if they're if they're you know if they're being charged with something if they get out on bail or not and how much bail has been set and then also I think there were some decisions around eligibility for parole and that type of thing so so yeah there were things that were sort of subjective decisions um, what now people are like oh well it's in the AI so obviously it's objective but it's not objective because it's the training data that's used to train it is is highly subjective and is highly biased. What is that saying? Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nothing changes. <laughs> and then the other thing that I saw the other day was um, IBM's artificial intelligence. They they built one, I think Watson to to participate in Jeopardy, and they actually managed to beat the human Jeopardy grandmaster. And then they had that AI in Cambridge, I think it was, um, participating in a debate. And it actually debated on both sides for and against. And it was um, pretty much like, can artificial intelligence be relied on to make kind of moral or ethical decisions? Uh, I would have loved to hear it, but um, the article I saw was just like a, like a kind of a, a report on it. And it had a couple of quotes from the AI. Um, but I'd love to see the video of it if it becomes available. But there was that that Uber car that ran into that lady who was walking across the road with her bicycle. And they did the post-mortem on that. And it flipped back and forwards between like, is it a, you know, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's Superman. No, it's, is it a car? Is it a pedestrian? And that programmed it. And one of the constraints that they'd put into the system was it did not expect to see pedestrians on the road.
Yes, that's a very American thing, isn't it? It's like if you go to Europe, there are like people on bicycles, people walking all over the place. But American roads, they're just like lots of cars there. So they actually just built their their kind of bias into the system. Well, and I think that's true in any any kind of decisioning. So, you know, when we start to look at at business decisions that that get made at the automation of those decisions, it's really important to be to be looking at what goes into those decisions to make sure that there there is some some degree of impartiality. It's a, you know, I don't think you're ever going to be fully impartial or or perfect with the way that these automated decisions are made because human decisions aren't perfect either. But you'd like to have them at least be done in a consistent way where you can show why a certain decision gets made. And the, one of the things in some industries, but we're seeing this all also in, in Europe, the, one of the, the things in the GDPR is uh, a requirement to have transparency of decisions. So if you have automated decision-making in a system, you have to be able to show what is the logic that that decision was based on so that somebody could be sure, for example, if they were turned down for insurance coverage, why they were turned down. They have the right to see the, the algorithm that made that decision, whether it was you know, given to them by a human or whether it was uh, done as an, as an automated algorithm. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> that was, um, I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, David Hanemeyer Hansen from Basecamp. He and his wife, they either earn the same amount or his wife might earn a little bit more than him and they, have, they both have the same credit score. But then uh, the Apple credit card that came out, he got offered something like five times more the credit limit than she did. Well, I'm not sure because he came out on Twitter about it and people like jumped on it and like, and, and somebody actually reported it to Twitter because I think he might've cursed in the, in his tweet, but then it got picked up and, um, Goldman Sachs, Apple, I think Goldman Sachs are behind Apple's credit card. They have to actually, there's like an investigation or an inquiry or something into the algorithms that they actually use. And obviously, they're not being done in a, you know, what or doesn't appear to be done in a, in a sort of a fair and equitable manner. If it's, you know, two people who have equivalent salary and credit scores and so on are getting vastly different results out of it. Yeah, that was uh, the guys in the Netherlands who used ZB um, in local government for like social welfare benefit granting. They wanted to use it precisely for that reason, so that they could publish the BPM diagrams of the process, so citizens could see exactly how the whole thing works. It's not like a Kafka-esque kind of bureaucracy that's a black box. I think that's one of the big advantages of, of having processes documented, even if they're not fully automated, but just being able to have that level of transparency to say, well, we know exactly what happens when this, you know, we go from this step to this step, and then here's the decisions that can, that can get made. And for some companies that those business processes, they don't share them, but for governments, that's definitely valid to be able to say with a with a government, this is exactly how we're doing this process. When you ask for you know something to do with your taxes or you know whatever it is you go to the the government for. 